Good morning and welcome to Living Hope. We just finished our Go conference and we're continuing in really it's not the end of our Go emphasis month this whole month of October. We're focusing on this theme until the whole world knows. The idea that God really calls us on this mission and that this is uh, not to stop until the whole world knows Jesus Christ and today we're going to be looking at the idea of God's judgment. And God's judgment, actually, this is not a popular um, aspect of the theology of, wait, is this slide correct? Oh, okay. Um, this is not a popular aspect of theology. We don't like to talk about judgment. In fact, we like, as Christians, we, tr we don't even want to say, you know, judgment too much. Um, but yet, we cannot fully appreciate the importance of mission and of the ministry of the gospel unless it is seen in the context of God's coming judgment. I remember I, I was just sharing the gospel actually this week and uh, talking to an individual and he was sharing, he said, oh, but a lot of the Christians that I talk to say, oh, if I'm an atheist, that means I'm from the devil. And I was like, ooh, you know, and I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry that you heard that. That's not true. You are uh, a child of God. God loves you very much. But I have to also say, however, we need to also realize as much as God loves you, there is a heaven and a hell. And if we don't put our faith in Jesus Christ, um, you are going to go to hell. I mean, I had to actually say that because I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, you know, God loves you. Everything is fine. We need to when we share the gospel, we talk about Jesus Christ, we need to talk about this aspect of judgment because judgment really puts everything into perspective as to why um, salvation and why Jesus is important. Um, if there's no judgment, um, then the philosophy of the world is correct. The world says you can believe whatever you want and whatever works for you. If there's no judgment, then there's no need for missions. We can simply live out our dreams and our desires and, and um, you know, do whatever we want without any serious consequences. And we may think, you know, some people think that a world without judgment actually would be wonderful. People say, oh, a world without judgment would be great. But, you know, if I'm allowed to live in any way that I want, do whatever I want, everything would be great. But actually, we think about it in a society without rules, without judgment, would really be far from utopian. For example, if I'm in a rush and I want to speed down the highway and ignore the traffic lights, we would say, well, that'd be great, you know, then I wouldn't be late to work, I wouldn't have to sit around waiting for the traffic lights to change, and that would be great if I was the only car on the road. But in reality, we know that there are many cars on the road, and if everyone says, I'm late or I'm bored, I want to drive as fast as I can, ignore all the traffic lights, we know that that would result in a lot of horrible deaths and a lot of grief for families. If there's no judgment, you know, what if there are individuals who say, well, I'm angry, I'm so angry that I want to beat you, I want to kill you, and, and, and I think that's okay because I'm angry, we would say, no, that's completely unacceptable. You cannot act like that because judgment actually is necessary. Judgment in its simplest form is the idea that there are some universal principles or rules that are needed for peace and viol the violation of these rules or principles will lead to consequences. That's, that's the idea of judgment. In the Christian worldview, the Bible asserts that there, are, there is an all-powerful, fully good, and just God who in love and compassion has set certain boundaries for his creation. 
And when creation abides by these boundaries, there's peace that is enjoyed by all. When, when the boundaries are violated, then there are consequences. Now we know the most familiar of these boundaries are the Ten Commandments and you know, people know the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not steal. And I believe that you don't have to even be a Christian to agree that these are actually good boundaries to observe. And yet we look at our world and even we look at ourselves and we violate these all the time. And we see the consequences of sin in our world today. We see war, we see murder, we see hatred, we see race, racism, corruption, crime, abuse. See, in this reality of the world that we live in, we have suffered deeply because we violate the laws of God. And, and so the word of God clearly speaks of a day of the Lord, a final, universal, complete judgment, and the consequences of which will be equal to the violation and the depth of sin in our world. God's judgment is coming and deep inside we know that we deserve it as a society. And so the question is, how should we live in light of the coming judgment? I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse one, and that's where we'll be looking at. So please, please stand in reverence for the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse one. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. This is verse 4. For the day to, we are, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So from this passage, we're going to see that God calls us to be faithful until the whole world knows because God's judgment is coming. Now the first thing we want to look at is really what is the day of the Lord and what are its implications? If you look at verse 2, there are some very specific details here. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So what does this passage tell us about the day of the Lord? First of all, it tells us that the day of the Lord is something that will come in the future. It hasn't occurred yet. It's something that's going to come in our future that we will, well, we won't see it, but it's coming. Uh, the second thing is that it says it will come unexpectedly. It says like a thief in the night. And we know that thieves don't make appointments. Thieves don't come when it's convenient for us. The day of the Lord will come when people are saying, peace and security is all good. Everything's good. Things are looking good. That's when 
judgment will come. Now I want to make a quick note. We talked about the rapture before. This is not the rapture. This is the judgment. Rapture is when all Christians are taken up to be with Christ. And so there's no more Christians on the earth. And now comes the day of the Lord, the judgment of God upon the unrighteous. The third thing we learn about the day of the Lord is that it is catastrophic in nature. The words sudden destruction, the words labor pains, this extreme and sudden pain and suffering. Nobody says, oh, labor pains, this is exciting. I'm really, you know, I've always wanted to experience this. No, labor pains are terrible, horrible, and, and it's, it's, it's painful. No one would mistake that for something that's, you know, good. Uh, the day of the Lord will begin with great violence, with terror on earth uh, and it will end with a lake of fire and so it is catastrophic in nature the third thing is the day of the Lord is inevitable that means it says they will not escape you cannot avoid it you cannot change it you cannot prevent it you cannot go back in time and destroy Skynet the day of the Lord is inevitable and so we put this all together. We say that the judgment of God is coming. It will come unexpectedly. It will be catastrophic in nature, and it will be unavoidable. And Paul says in this time, conditions will seem uh, very calm. And that's the thing is that we think about the day of the Lord, and you think about right now in our lives. Jesus even says people will be eating and drinking, being doing their work and doing their stuff, and the day of the Lord will just come. And we think about this and say, you know, looking at our life right now and say, oh, you know, uh, life is good, uh, work is good, school is good, grades are good, everything's good, I'm getting ready for school, blah, 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 I'm getting ready, planning what we're going to eat for dinner tonight and you know daily normal routine and boom God's judgment can come upon them just just like that people won't know and it says the destruction uh, will come on just very uh, suddenly like they won't know what will happen uh, that, that God's wrath is building up over time and eventually it's just gonna come upon people now the the big question is it says they will not escape so who is the they? Is it everyone? Is it just bad people who deserve punishment? In the previous chapter, chapter 4, Paul talked about the rapture. It says, uh, during this event in the future, the rapture, all believers, uh, both living and dead, are going to ra be raised up and they will meet with Jesus in the air. So at the rapture, all the believers are going to be physically uh, and spiritually removed from this earth, except for, again, we, if you took Paul's class, I mean, not the Apostle Paul's class, but Paul, our Paul's class, um, he talked about the idea that there will be witnesses that will remain on the earth, but during the day of the Lord in general, all who remain are going to be basically those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and, and what, the, what this, uh, what, what, Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying is that there is no distinction between a worse sinner or a better sinner. That without the salvation of Jesus, all sinners will experience the day of the Lord's judgment. So if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus as Savior, um, even if you come to church all the time, even if you listen to your parents all the time, even if you're here and you, you know how to talk about Jesus and things like that, um, if we've never put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, or we're not really sure if we're a Christian, we don't know where we stand with God, the message of Christianity is that there's a day of judgment. You cannot exclude the day of judgment from the message of the gospel. There's a day of wrath when God, God's wrath will be poured out 
poured out over the injustice of this world. That the Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of this glory of God. And the Bible makes it very clear that we cannot argue with God. We cannot bargain with him and say, well, I'm better than this person or that person. That Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. He is the only provision. And Jesus makes it very clear that this is the only way to salvation. If you've never put your faith in Jesus as Savior, that God says that if we admit that I'm a sinner, that I need Jesus, if I believe that Jesus died for my sin on the cross, that that's what, that's what Jesus did, that's what the cross means, and rose from the dead, if we choose to believe and follow Jesus by faith, um, we know that, uh, that we will be saved from this day of judgment. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you today, uh, even today, uh, to, to, to do this. Now the second thing we want to look at is... You know, if I have put my faith in Jesus Christ um, and I know that I'm going to be saved, uh, how then should I live? How do I live in light of the judgment of God? In verse 4, it says, But you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of light. We are not of the night or the darkness. Now Paul says he's, he makes this distinction here that, that if we receive Jesus Savior, we live in the light. Now this is both a reality, what I would say is both a reality and a command. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are children of light, meaning we are of the light. That's a truth. But there's also a command, an implicit command, that we are to actively live in this light. In verse six it says, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Now last week or two weeks ago we saw that the word sleep can sometimes be a euphemism for death, that those who are asleep, those who have died. But this Greek word in here in this verse is a different word. It's a word that is used to describe um, being lethargic, uh, being slow, uh, particularly because of drunkenness, uh, slow movements, slow reactions, slow in our minds. You know, when you grow old, um, it's a hard thing, and I hate to keep bringing this up, but it's a hard thing. I mean, you know, it's like I remember, and I distinctly remember certain things. Like, I remember when my body, exactly when my body was slowing down. It was that summer retreat. We were playing football, and I told my body to, to catch that ball, and I shifted my weight forward, and my legs didn't get the memo, and boom, I fell flat on my face. Now, again, normally if I was 20 years younger, I would have ran, got the ball, and I would have, you know, juked and whatever, and, you know, and, and I would have made the touchdown. But because I was older, I was like, hey, legs, you know, my body's ready, and I literally shifted my weight. But my legs wouldn't, my legs did not come underneath my body like they were supposed to. <laughs> and literally, it was ridiculous. I just fell flat on my face. Very embarrassing. But body slows down. It doesn't do what you ask it to do. Another thing, uh, password on my router. I'm trying to figure out, oh, what would read? Lauren goes, what's the password? You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I better check. And I'm looking on the router, and, and the, 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 the password is so small. And I'm sitting there staring at it and blinking as if it's going to get better. <laughs> And it doesn't get better, right? It just stays fuzzy. And then I'm like, hey, hon, Lauren, you got to read this for me because I just, I've been staring at it for like five minutes now and it's not getting better. Yeah, not five minutes, but you know, a few seconds. But anyways, so she reads it out to me and I write it down and I write it down larger so I can read it. But 
you know, we think about this and we say, you know, when our body and when our minds and when our eyes don't function properly, I mean, it's just really sad. We don't like it. Um, now, physically, we accept it. But spiritually, spiritually, it is unacceptable. We don't want our bodies to, 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 to not react. We don't want our eyes to not see. My dad uh, was a pilot um, during, I guess it was the Korean War. And he said, uh, he said to me, he said, well, you know, son, you're never going to be a pilot, fighter pilot. Because I said, dad, I want to be a fighter pilot. And he said, no, you can't be. And I said, why? He goes, well, because you wear glasses. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he goes, well, f to be a fighter pilot, your eyes have to be perfect. They don't let anybody who needs glasses, they, your eyes have to be perfect. And I said, why? He said, well, because fighter pilots have to be able to look on the horizon and they have to be able to see the enemy coming, the enemy planes coming from afar off. And if your, uh, your eyes can't see it, you know, the, 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 the planes that you're protecting are in danger. Um, and so your eyes have to be perfect. And in the same way, you know, your reflexes, everything has to be perfect. And, and so this idea that, that as we think about spiritually, our eyes have to be perfect. We have to be able to see when the enemy is coming on the horizon, you know, people are depending on us. Our reflexes, when, when, when it's time to fight, when it's time to do the right things for God, our bodies, our minds spiritually have to be ready. We cannot be foggy or sleepy or slow to react because, not just for our sake, but because the whole convoy, the whole mission is dependent upon our ability to see our best to move our best, to fight with all of our strength. Why? Because we are fighting for people, uh, for the lives of people. And we cannot afford to be sluggish, slow. We can't afford for our eyes to not be able to be focused, things like that. The Bible says outwardly we're wasting away. So there's nothing you can do physically. That's what's going to happen to us. But inwardly we're being renewed each day. That means for every single one of us spiritually, we should be getting better and better, not slower and slower. Our spiritual eyes should be coming, becoming more sharp being able to see the lies of the enemy, being able to see what God is calling us to do, being able to see what God is doing around us. Our, 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 our reflexes, our spiritual reflexes should be sharp. Our, our minds should be sharp with the word of God so that we know how we should act, what we should do uh, whenever we are called in whatever situation. That's the idea of, of, of the idea that we should not be asleep. The second thing it says that we should keep awake and be sober and being sober Sober doesn't just mean, you know, uh, whatever. It means to be ready, to be alert. Um, I was reading about uh, online about track and field. And it says, especially in the sprint events, like the 100-meter sprint race, um, a good sprint start, uh, a good start becomes a crucial factor for the sprinter to win the race. Because, you know, you watch the sprints, and they, they win the race by like one, 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 one tenth of a second. And so the start is so important. You have to listen for the starting pistol. And when you hear it, you have, to be, you have to just jump out the block with a huge kind of surge of strength in order to, to win that race. And I'm going to show you a video to watch this runner. Watch their technique. And you can kind of spot the problem in their technique as they start and why this person doesn't win the race. It, it's the second one that's closest to us. So we we'll go ahead and show that. Go ahead and show it. It says she's not ready. Oop. 
What happened? Push go. Okay, so she wasn't ready. Christians need to be alert and ready. Have you ever had that when it's like, oh, I should have said this, or oh, if I was only ready, I could have said this, or I could have done that, but it's too late. Your time has passed. The person's gone already. Or, or, oh, the time for saying that or doing that, the opportunity's gone. Oh, I wasn't ready. I was too distracted or I was too tired or I wasn't thinking. God says, Paul says, and God says, we have to be ready. We have to be ready every moment. When we step out the door and we say, well, I've got to be ready to get to work. I've got to get my kids ready to, to have their lunches ready. I've got to make sure i got... Yeah, we get ready for all these things, so we don't, but we also have to be ready for the fact that God is sending us out on mission. Every single day when we step out of the house, that's like our starting block to say, I have to get ready to go out that God may have, not just God may have, he does have something that he wants us to do. He has something that he wants us to do to proclaim Jesus, whether it's through our mouths, whether it's through acts of love, whether it's through whatever we do, that God has something that he's calling us to do that we must be ready to do, not for our sake. Uh, we're, we're disciplined, we're ready, um, and, and we're not for our sake, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus. We don't worry about ourselves. No, we're, we, we're, we're worried, we're ready because we are going to meet a majority of people that we meet in this world um, and it's hard to, to, to reconcile with this fact but the majority of the people that we meet in this world are facing the judgment of God right and the Bible says they will not escape nothing we know the only way is Jesus um, I was visiting uh, when I was young visiting the Oregon caves and um, I remember going into caves were just so beautiful, these huge caves. And we got pretty far into the, um, into the uh, tour. And the guide says, okay, I want you to, he says, we, we've set up all these beautiful lights so that you can see the caves. They're so pretty and they, they even shine colored lights on it. So I want you to experience the caves without lights. And he turned off the lights. And it was terrifying. I mean, literally, like, you could hold your hand like this and you could not see your hand because there's actually there's no light source at all. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you're in the dark, eventually your eyes adjust and you can sort of see certain things, but that's only because there may be some vestiges of light somewhere and so your eyes are adjusting to it. But when there's absolutely no light, complete darkness, you could stand there holding, and literally I would hold my hand up like this and I couldn't see it. I'm literally, you can't see it at all. It's just utter darkness. And I remember at that time, and he only did it for like about two minutes. That was terrifying. And I kept thinking in my mind, man, what if, what if we went into this tour and all of a sudden all the lights went out and our tour guide left me here? You know, I would laugh, but when you're there, it's terrifying. I was, I'm terrified. I was like, what if I was in this darkness for the rest of my life? No, I mean, I can't even see 
the hand in front of my face, there's no possible way that I'm going to find my way out of these caves. No possible way, because we've already you know, traveled you know, half an hour down these things, crawling up these things, and I can't see a thing. And there's no way I'm ever going to get out of this. If, if the lights went out right now and the tour guide left, we would be here for the rest of our lives, living in total darkness. And it was, it was terrifying. Now, we don't know what hell is going to be like, but the hell, at least one of the words it describes is an outer darkness. The idea that, that, that for eternity it's without the light of God. It's just darkness. And you add to that the screaming and wailing of people suffering and having to experience that for, for eternity. That's the world. That's where the world is going without Jesus Christ. Um, I want to introduce you to Samuel Marinus Zwimmer. He's an apostle. He was the apostle called the Apostle to Islam. He is born in Vreeland, Michigan in 1867. He was the 13th child of a reformed church minister's family and many years later when he shared with his mother that he believed God was calling him into the foreign field, she told him that she had dedicated him to the Lord's service and placed him in the cradle with the prayer that he might grow up to be a missionary. During Zoemer's senior year, a pioneer from the student volunteer movement visited the campus. And while this speaker was presenting the needs of missions, he had a map of India displayed on the, uh, the board with a metronome ticking in front of it. And it was said that every time the metronome ticked back and forth, one person in India died having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this affected Samuel Zwemer so much that at the end of the message, he rushed forward and signed the decision card that says, God helping me, I purpose to be a foreign missionary. During the first year of his theological studies, Zwemer set aside an hour from 12 to noon from 12 noon to 1 o'clock as a special time for prayer and devotions. He developed the habit of doing his quiet time, reading scriptures in different languages every day for the, for, of the week to keep up his knowledge of different languages. And these plans, as these plans took shape, Zwemer felt God's calling to Arabia. And Zwemer approached uh, different agencies about being sent to Arabia and none of them would sponsor him, stating that it was foolish to want to go to such a fanatical people. And Zwemer was undeterred and he stated, if God calls you and no board will send you, bore a hole through that board and just go anyways. So Zwemer left America as a missionary for Arabia in June 1890. He arrived in Beirut for the study of Arabic. And from Beirut, he went to Cairo. He went and he laid plans for the exploration of Arabia and in nearby countries for mission openings. And after extensive investigation, he settled in Basra, about 60 miles above the Persian Gulf. He worked in Basra for six years where he met his wife, Amy Wilkes, a young missionary nurse who would eventually become his wife. Zwemer and his wife moved to Barat. 
Bahrain, where they set up a mission station. In Bahrain, Zwemer combined street preaching, literature, and simple medical care as a form of preaching the gospel. And in 1892, Zwemer's younger brother, Peter, joined them in the mission, and Peter opened a substation in Muscat. And in 1894, the Arab, the, this Arabian mission was finally adopted by the board of the Reformed Church and became an actual field in the mission field. In 1898, uh, Zwemer's brother Peter died of illness. And then six years later, in July 1904, uh, Samuel and Amy lost their two daughters uh, to dysentery in Bahrain. And in their parents, they inscribed in the tomb mar that marks their grave, it says, worthy is the lamb to receive riches. In 1905, the Reform Board of Foreign Missions asked Zwemer to become their field secretary. And the student volunteer movement also called him to be a representative for recruitment of students to go into the mission field. And so for the next five years, Zwemer spoke at different conventions within the U.S. and in Europe, and he was responsible, they say he was responsible for the first general conference of missionaries uh, to the world in Islam. And that was held in Cairo in April of 1906. Robert Speer wrote of Dr. Zwemer, he said, he hung a great map of Islam before us, and with the sweep of his hand across all the darkened areas, he said, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, and thou, O Christ, art all they want. What Christ can do for any man, he can do for every man. And he spoke to many student gatherings. Zwemer, he said that Zwemer was responsible for influencing more young and women, more young men and women to go into missionary service than any other individual in all of Christian history. And he went from country to country across North Africa, then to South Africa, then to Indonesia, then to Iran, then to Iraq, then to India, then to China. Zwemer was ready to travel anywhere that Muslims can be found. He was passionate about the importance of personal evangelism and he followed a familiar pattern. He would address Muslims with the gospel with whatever means possible. He accepted the appointment to become the missions, the professor of missions at Princeton Theological Seminary because he saw this as an opportunity to influence, continue to influence young men and women to enter into uh, the mission field and challenge them uh, to go. In 1946, he was the key speaker at the first InterVarsity Student Foreign Missions Fellowship, and eventually he played a big part in starting the first Ur Urbana, actually Urbana Convention, sponsored by InterVarsity. When Zwemer was 83, the mission of which he was a founder celebrated its 60th anniversary, and he went to Bahrain. He visited the two graves of his daughters, and, if he, said, and he said, if we should hold our peace, even these stones will cry out for the evangelization of Arabia. On Wednesday, April 2nd, 1952, the heart that beat so long and hard for missions took its rest. The president uh, of Princeton Theological Seminary called Zwemer the prince among missionaries and apostle to the Muslims. Dr. William Miller, speaking at the Urbana uh, Student uh, missionary convention said, Dr. Zwemer's pleading voice thrilled 
multitudes of Christians in many lands, inspiring them to work and to pray for Muslims all around the world. The challenge that he sounded must be heard again today. For today, the number of lost Muslims is much greater than it was when Zwemer dedicated his life for their salvation. But yet the number of Christians who are seeking to save them is pitiably inadequate. The doors are open, but who will enter? The walls are falling, but who will occupy the city? The fields are widened to harvest, but the laborers remain few. And I like this, this quotation here. The cross is not just a message. Um, it is a way of life. Whether you are called to the mission field, or whether you are called to the people who are here, who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must live every day sober, and ready for this great mission to live out the cross of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be observing our Lord's communion and this is a this is a celebration that Jesus reminds us to say this is my body and which is my blood which was shed for you and I, we think about this and we say that, 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 that God gave up his son. This is how important it was to bring people to himself, that God would make this great sacrifice uh, for all of mankind, even for those who would be enemies of him, that he would desire for them to be saved. And so it is a shame that after God does all these things that people would not even, there's still people in this world um, who have not even heard the name of Jesus. And that, to me, that just uh, is unacceptable for me, I mean, just personally, I, I can't fathom it, I can't accept it. And neither should you, neither should we. When we know how much God has done for us, when every month we celebrate what God has done for us, we do it knowing that there are so many in this world who, maybe even people that we know, who, who would not even know the name of Jesus, or if they know the name of Jesus, they, they totally don't understand who he is and what he has done for them. And so we invite, I invite you right now, as if, you are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you join us in taking of the, the elements. But before we do, let's just spend some time in quietness before the Lord. To be reminded of, indeed, what God has called us, what God has done for us. And that as you come and take of the elements, that you're coming forward to saying that, 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 that I am choosing to follow Jesus, to obey him in this great commission and calling that is not an option just for some Christians. It is a calling to every Christian, every person who enjoys the salvation of Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ, that we are now called to obey him and proclaim Jesus until the day he returns. And so when you're ready, please do come and spend time praying with others, praying with us together as we really do bring our world before the Lord and our place ourselves before the Lord.
that this world will come to know Jesus as Savior. Let's go ahead and just spend some quietness before him. When you're ready, please do come up.